Well, the election has come and gone, and it's left some pretty significant changes in its wake. One change was the passage of Proposition 57, the Public Safety and Rehabilitation Act of 2016. Whether that proposition was aptly named is not a question that we're going to be discussing in this edition of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide podcast. We will, however, be discussing what Proposition 57 is all about and how it will impact prosecutors, and we'll be doing it with someone who some others have claimed probably knows more about criminal law than anyone else in the state of California, Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney Kathy Storton. This podcast is approved for 50 minutes of general MCLE self-study credit. Kathy, thanks for joining me in this first of several podcasts devoted to explaining some of the new laws passed by initiative and statute going into effect in 2017. I'm happy to be here, Jeff. Uh, The initiative we're going to be focusing on, uh, of course, is Proposition 57. And why don't you start off by giving us a quick snapshot of what it purports to do. Proposition 57 amends both the California Constitution and juvenile statutes by providing for early parole for persons convicted of a nonviolent felony offense and sentenced to state prison after completing the full term for the primary offense. It authorizes the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, we'll be referring to that as CDCR here, to grant any state prison inmate additional good behavior credits and rehabilitation and educational achievement credits. It requires CDCR to adopt regulations and certify that those regulations protect and enhance public safety, and it requires juvenile courts to decide whether a minor should be transferred to adult court. by eliminating both mandatory and discretionary direct filing by prosecutors. Kathy, Prop 57 passed on November 8th of this year. What is the effective date of Prop 57? It was effective the day after the election on Wednesday, November 9th, 2016. There's a declaratory uh, portion of Prop 57 uh, which lays out its uh, stated purpose and intent. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, Proposition 57 uh, in that declaratory section claims to protect and enhance public safety, to save money by reducing wasteful spending on prisons, to prevent federal courts from indiscriminately releasing prisoners, to stop the revolving door of crime by emphasizing rehabilitation, especially for juveniles, and it requires a judge, not a prosecutor, to decide whether a juvenile should be tried in adult court. So, Kathy, in light of those stated purposes, will Prop 57 result in more people being kept in prison or more people being released from prison? It will result in more people being released from prison. Why is that? It admitted the California Constitution to add provisions that permit inmates to be considered for parole or to be eligible for parole uh, much earlier than they would have uh, been eligible and it allows inmates to accrue conduct credits in greater amounts than previously provided uh, by statute. So it sounds like uh, at least these provisions uh, will only be impacting persons once they've been sent to prison. Why do prosecutors need to know about Prop 57's impact in this regard? Well, it's going to have potential impacts on uh, how long inmates will serve in state prison, and so prosecutors need to know about it when 
entering into uh, plea agreements, when talking to victims of crime about how long a defendant will have to serve before he or she is eligible for release. Uh, and it's important when informing victims of crimes about their right to be notified by CDCR about a defendant's potential release on parole or on post-release community supervision from state prison. What does Prop 57 specifically say regarding when persons in prison may be released on parole? Well, it doesn't actually say when they will be released. It, it simply says that uh, certain prisoners will be eligible for release. Okay, so what does it say regarding when prisoners will be eligible for release? It says that any person convicted of a nonviolent felony offense and sentenced to state prison shall be eligible for parole consideration after completing the full term for his or her primary offense. All right, Kathy, that's a pretty short sentence, but we're going to need to spend some uh, considerable amount of time breaking it down nonetheless. So uh, first, you, you mentioned that it applies to any person convicted of a nonviolent felony offense. Does the statute define a nonviolent felony offense? Proposition 57 does not define nonviolent felony offense. Uh, the CDCR will have to issue regulations about who is eligible for early parole consideration, and, and in doing that is going to have to define what a nonviolent felony offense is, and they will have to uh, make sure that that definition both uh, meets the uh, intent of the proposition, which is to enhance and protect public safety, and they will have to make sure they come up with a definition that will hold up against claims by inmates that they are constitutionally entitled to release because they have been convicted of a nonviolent crime. Kathy, do you have any uh, reasonable speculation on how that term will be defined either by the CDCR or ultimately uh, by the courts? Since there is no definition of nonviolent felony offense provided in Proposition 57, there's a reasonable probability that the courts will interpret the definition of that term by looking to how the term violent felony is defined and then defining nonviolent felony offense as referring to all felony offenses not defined as violent felonies. Indeed, in the analysis by the legislative analyst, it was stated, quote, although the measure and current law do not specify which felony crimes are defined as nonviolent, this analysis assumes a nonviolent offense would include any felony offense that is not specifically defined in statute as violent, end quote. That was from the ballot uh, pamphlet that was uh, given to the voters. The term violent felony is defined in, currently in Penal Code Section 667.5C. And in the rebuttal to the argument against Proposition 57 that was in the official voter information guide, the proponents wrote, quote, violent criminals as defined in Penal Code 667.5C are excluded from parole. If the definition of the term nonviolent felony is viewed as ambiguous, these balance statements may be considered in determining how to interpret the term. However, just because a term is undefined in an initiative does not necessarily mean the term is ambiguous. So, Kathy, you could have a situation where a term is not defined, but it's the kind of term that uh, an average layperson would understand, and, and arguably, if a term like nonviolent might be understood by the layperson. It's not an unusual term. So I, I guess there's some possibility that they would not look to 667.5C and just use the layperson's term. 
Yes, I think that's very possible, especially since the regulations will have to enhance and protect public safety. Okay, well, that's gonna be uh, an open question for a little while yet until we start seeing what the regulations are. I expect that uh, the defense is gonna be making arguments that it's a much more restrictive definition and uh, the Department of Corrections and or folks who are interested in keeping folks incarcerated will be arguing that it should be defined pretty broadly. Uh, in some ways, it sounds like Justice Chin may have been prescient in his dissenting opinion in a case called Brown versus Superior Court that had to deal with uh, an issue regarding whether or not Prop 57 uh, should have been on the ballot. And in that case, he indicated that because the United States Supreme Court had recently declared unconstitutional as impermissibly vague, the term violent felony in a federal statute, he said the absence of a definition is troublesome. I mean, the penal code contains various lists of crime that satisfy various definitions, including a list of violent felonies. But Justice Chin speculated, does not mean that the statute will apply to any crime not listed in those statutes, uh, even though some of those crimes may arguably be violent. Can, this, can a statute define a constitutional term? This is a, a constitutional uh, provision. What if the legislature amends the list? What happens if the term nonviolent felony offense is also found to be void for vagueness? Would that mean all inmates would be eligible for parole? I guess we'll just have to wait and see, Jeff. I, I suspect so. But in light of this potential ambiguity, since we don't know how it's ultimately going to be, going to be defined, do you have any words of advice for, for prosecutors uh, until some of these regulations and some of these issues are has, hashed out? If it's, until the issue is resolved, if, if it's important to the parties uh, as to whether or not a crime qualifies as a nonviolent felony offense, then uh, care should be taken in, in crafting negotiated dispositions. Uh, for example, the parties could agree in a particular case whether or not a crime qualifies as the type of nonviolent felony offense uh, pursuant to Proposition 57 that would qualify a defendant for uh, consideration for early uh, parole. The parties may want to specify on the record whether a crime does or does not qualify as a nonviolent felony offense for Proposition 57 purposes. Uh, the parties might also ask the court to make a finding on the record and to include that finding in the abstract of judgment so that that information goes up with the defendant to, to state prison. Uh, when a defendant has pled open uh, to charges and there's no plea agreement uh, or there's been a trial and, and no agreement, prosecutors and defense counsel should ask the court to make it clear on the record whether the crime is a nonviolent felony offense for purposes of Proposition 57. Yeah, the parties may even want to go so far as stating whether or not whether this crime that the defendant is pleading to qualifies as a nonviolent or violent felony is an express uh, provision and an important provision of the plea bargain so that if somehow uh, the CDCR comes to a different conclusion, arguably that uh, negotiated plea could be uh, vacated. But Yes, uh, that's certainly an that's option. A, that's an option. It's something that uh, everyone would want to consider uh, first with their office to determine if that's something that would be a standard, standard And I think policy. the other thing to, to maybe keep in mind as well is, is that it's unclear 
whether should the parties agree as to the quality of a certain offense or a judge were to make a ruling that the offense is or is not within Proposition 57, whether CDCR would uh, comply with that finding. I think that's unclear. Exactly. So, uh, Kathy, I noticed that in the argument portion of the ballot, in the uh, argument in favor of Prop 57, it stated Prop 57 does not, and they capitalized not, uh, it, it does not uh, and will not change the federal court order that excludes sex offenders as defined in Penal Code Section 290 from parole. Now, that was in the argument portion. Is there language anywhere in Prop 57 itself that specifically excludes sex registrants who were serving sentences on nonviolent felonies from being eligible for early release? Nothing in the language of Proposition 57 states that a defendant currently serving time for a registrable sex offense or was a prior conviction for a registrable sex offense is ineligible for early parole consideration. Moreover, the actual federal court order uh, presumably referenced in the ballot argument does not actually exclude sex offenders from being paroled in California. So what, uh, what federal court order is actually being referred to in uh, in, in the ballot argument. This was the uh, joint cases of Coleman versus Brown and Plata versus Brown, a three-judge panel in federal court that approved giving uh, additional credits to two-strike offenders. And in that original order, uh, there was no, were no prohibitions about giving that credit to two-strike offenders who are also sex registrants. Okay, my understanding is that even though it wasn't in the order, the state came up with guidelines that they uh, offered to follow, and in those guidelines, they, they indicated at some point that they would be excluding uh, individuals who are registered sex offenders, but that's never been formally put into the, into the order itself. It's just been assumed that that's how it's going to be carried out. Is that a correct statement? That's my understanding, yes. Okay, well, uh, in view of this uh, ambiguity, it's not obviously mentioned in Prop 57 itself, and whether or not uh, the regulations will incorporate uh, a provision that excludes 290 registrants, whether or not they're just a 290 registrant in general, or whether or not they're serving time on a crime that... Uh, requires registration for 290. There's some ambiguity there. So do you have any advice for prosecutors when it comes to defendants who are convicted of registrable offenses that are uh, not listed in 667.5C or just uh, individuals who have uh, convictions that require them to register under 290 but are not pleading to an offense uh, that's listed as a a violent felony under 667.5C. Yeah, prosecutors should not assume that persons either currently serving sentences for registrable sex offenses uh, listed in Penal Code 290C or persons with prior offenses that require them to register will be ineligible for early release under Prop 57. Again, as we said earlier, there's no, no mention at all of sex offenses in Proposition 57 regarding early parole. It's simply stated as nonviolent felony offense. Uh, plea bargains sh should be carefully negotiated uh, because of this. Okay, now, as mentioned before, Prop 57 says any person convicted of a nonviolent felony offense and sentenced to state prison shall be eligible for parole consideration after completing 
the full term of his or her primary offense. Now, this phrase, primary offense, that is something new to the ears of, of myself and I expect many other prosecutors. Does Prop 57 define what primary offense means? And for that matter, does it define what full term uh, means? Yes, it, it says that for purposes of this section only, meaning the section about early parole consideration, the full term for the primary offense means the longest term of imprisonment imposed by the court for any offense, excluding the imposition of an enhancement, a consecutive sentence, or alternative sentence. So does this mean that a defendant serving a sentence for a nonviolent felony offense will be eligible for parole consideration after serving a sentence on the substantive offense for which he received the longest uh, term, regardless of the number of other offenses defendant was simultaneously sentenced on? Yes regardless of how much additional time was added on to the defendant's sentence by way of an enhancement? Yes. Regardless of whether the sentence on the substantive offense was increased by some circumstance that resulted in an alternative sentence? Yes. Okay. Now, Kathy, I know our audience will understand what an enhancement generally refers to, but what is an alternative sentence? Proposition 57 doesn't define the term alternative sentence, but... uh I think some good examples of what uh, the proposition means by alternative sentences are our three-strike sentencing scheme, which is a different way of calculating a sentence. It's not tacked on to an underlying term, which is what an enhancement does, but it's a different way of calculating the entire term. So we have the three-strikes law under Penal Code 667. We have the one-strike sex offender law under Penal Code 667.6. 6-1, which provides for terms of 15 to life or 25 to life for various sex crimes depending on a defendant's prior convictions or the way or, or manner in which the crime was committed. And we have Penal Code Section 667.71, habitual sex, or, sex offenders. So those are the kinds of alternative sentences that Proposition 57 might be referring to. Yeah, in all likelihood, that's what they were, that's what they were thinking of when they were talking about alternative sentences. It's, they often use terms like alternate sentences or alternate penalties when it comes to describing these kinds of statutes which basically morph the sentence rather than tack on time like an enhancement. Uh, but as, just to make it kind of clear, a defendant who might be serving a three-strike sentence who is serving time for an otherwise nonviolent felony that person could be potentially subject to early release. Yeah, assuming defendants that are eligible for early parole consideration are excluded if they're serving a sentence for a violent felony in 667.5C, there's nothing in the language of Proposition 57 that would prevent a defendant serving a three-strike sentence for an underlying nonviolent offense from being considered for early, for eligible for early parole. Hmm. There are some statutes that have different subdivisions which change the penalty based on the existence of different circumstances, such as when the substantive crime is accompanied by use of force, like under Penal Code Section 136.1c, which increases a sentence for threatening a witness if uh, use of force or fear is uh, involved, or when the defendant is a repeat offender, like under Penal Code Section 647.6c2, which increases the sentence for annoying or molesting children. 
does Prop 57 impact the length of time served on those offenses? I think it's less likely that Prop 57 will impact those kinds of crimes since they have an additional element. Um, I think, it's, again, it's less likely that 57 will impact those kinds of crimes as it will be that it impacts things like three strikes and one strike sex offender laws. But it's an open question, obviously. All right. Um, will crimes that are designated violent felonies only because of an attached enhancement qualify as a nonviolent felony offense? For example, will a felony conviction that's only a violent felony because of the infliction of GBI or the use of a firearm qualify as a nonviolent felony considering that in determining when a person is eligible for parole consideration, Section 32 of Article 1, which is what was instituted by Prop 57, that doesn't take into account attached enhancements. Assuming that violent felonies listed in 667.5C do not qualify for early parole consideration, the answer is very likely no, uh, considering how Section 32 in Prop 57 is structured. The only persons eligible for early parole consideration are defendants serving sentences for nonviolent crimes. It is only when a defendant has already been determined to be serving a sentence for a nonviolent felony offense that the question of eligibility for early parole consideration even arises. Uh, there's really no reason to believe that the definition of a primary offense, which excludes enhancements and which only becomes relevant uh, once the determination has been made that the offense qualifies for early release, that that will be used to define nonviolent felony offense since the latter deals with what crimes are eligible for early release and the former with how to calculate the date of release eligibility based on the sentence imposed for those crimes. It's like comparing apples to oranges. Uh, but this won't deter defendants from making the argument that the judges should look at just the underlying offense. For example, a 245A4, assault with force likely, is not a violent felony, but when you add a 12 or 22.7, great bodily injury enhancement onto that, clearly the crime is violent. So we will expect, we should expect to see arguments like that from defendants. It'll be very difficult though for a CDCR not to, I think, take that, the enhancements into account because it is, after all, a it violent felony. It makes it a violent offense. Yes. Okay. Now, will defendants who are serving time based on convictions for both nonviolent felony offenses and violent felony offenses be eligible for early parole consideration in light of the fact that Prop 57 says, notwithstanding anything in this article or any other provision of law, any person convicted of a nonviolent felony offense and sentenced to state prison shall be eligible for parole consideration, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, unfortunately, the way it was drafted, this is going to be an argument that we should expect defendants to make, that as long as they are stand convicted of a nonviolent felony, it doesn't matter what else they're convicted of, they're eligible for early parole consideration. So I would expect the defendants convicted of multiple offenses, some violent, some nonviolent, to argue that, that, that they do qualify for early uh, parole consideration. Kathy, do you think this argument will have any serious legs to it? It really shouldn't because, again, the regulations that CDCR is required to adopt have to enhance, have to be certified to enhance and protect public safety and uh, the uh, declaratory part of Proposition 57 about public safety and et cetera, et cetera, is such that I think it would be very difficult for this argument to have any serious legs. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, why would you provide early release for a defendant 
Why would you preclude someone from getting early release if they could committed a violent felony, but not preclude early release if they committed a violent felony and an additional felony? That's that's nonviolent. That that you know I, I don't see a court ever interpreting it, it in that fashion. Nope. And then there's also a- aspects where, uh, if you look at the ballot statement, the 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 argument in favor of passing uh, Prop 57 says specifically and they're quoting from the California Supreme Court decision in People v. Brown, which we mentioned earlier, it applies only to prisoners convicted of nonviolent felonies. And it, it specifically says in the rebuttal ballot argument, it does not authorize parole for violent offenders. So I, I can't ever see this argument uh, flying in light of this, uh, this language in the ballot argument, and clearly uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit nonsensical as well. So, Kathy, uh, considering that this argument that someone who's been convicted of both nonviolent and violent felony offenses should be eligible under Prop 57 is such a loser, is it worthwhile for prosecutors to make it clear on the record that just because a defendant is being sentenced on both a violent and nonviolent offense, he will not be eligible for early release? Or is this uh, overkill? I don't think it's overkill. I think at this point, with uh, no case law to guide us and no regulations having been adopted by CDCR, that it uh, probably is a very good idea to try to nail down what we can nail down now and make it very clear on the record and in an abstract of judgment uh, what the position is of, uh, of, of, of the parties and or the court regarding this offense the defendant or offenses the defendant has been convicted of. Okay, so uh, a lot of times what we try to negotiate uh, will not necessarily be upheld by a CDCR if they disagree with the parties. But in situations where both the parties are in agreement as to what should be the results, and it's consistent with what CDCR wants, then if a defendant had agreed there is probably a pretty good argument that they waive the ability to challenge that agreement. So if both of us are coming in and saying, hey, the defendant's convicted of a nonviolent felony offense and a violent felony offense, he's not going to be eligible under Prop 57, and the defendant says, yes, that's our understanding, then it goes to, uh, he goes to prison, CDCR says, uh, gives a similar interpretation. The defendant is probably going to be precluded from arguing that he's entitled in that circumstance. I agree. Okay, so uh, Prop 57 provides that any person convicted of a nonviolent felony offense and sentenced to state prison shall be eligible for parole consideration. Now, that's uh, a term that's not necessarily been used before in any of the statutes. What if a person can only be released on post-release community supervision or, or perks? Does Prop 57 apply to that defendant? Well, the majority of prisoners that are going to be eligible for parole consideration under Prop 57 are serving determinate term sentences, not life sentences. Uh, They're serving, for example, two strike sentences where the current offense might be nonviolent, it might be serious, or it might be violent. Determinate term prisoners are automatically released onto parole or post-release community supervision from state prison. Uh, Many of them are serving 50% of their uh, sentences, and they don't go through an actual parole hearing. It's an automatic release based on the credits the defendant has earned or any that might have been taken away due to misconduct in in prison. Parole consideration is not defined by Prop 57, and this lack of a definition might cause some confusion, 
because most people who, are, who might be eligible for early parole consideration are more likely to be released onto PRCS, post-release community supervision, rather than on parole. Defendants who are serving sentences for current serious or violent felonies are released from state prison onto state parole. Defendants serving terms for non-violent, non-serious felonies are released onto PRCS. Um, others who are released onto parole are uh, three strikers and high-risk sex offenders. So the, uh, uh, the uh, lack of mention of PRCS in Prop 57 is curious. Do you think uh, Prop 57 will then not apply to persons who are eligible for release on perks rather than parole? Well, one could argue that the use of the, the phrase nonviolent felony offense and parole in the same sentence might indicate an intent by the drafters to limit early release to just inmates eligible for parole, those who are convicted of serious felonies, uh, or viol uh, sorry, serious felonies, three strikers, high-risk sex offenders, uh, mildly disordered offenders, et cetera. But it's much more likely that this is a drafting error because, after all, uh, the use of the phrase nonviolent felony offense would not uh, conjure up in one's mind uh, defendants such as three strikers and high-risk sex, offender, sex offenders, et cetera. So it's much more likely that it's, it's a drafting error. Um, and, and drafted er errors can be corrected by the court, correct? Yes. And I think even if it is, uh, or rather, regardless of whether or not it's a drafter's error, um, it seems to, to reason that perks offenders who meet the criteria of having served their full sentence on their primary offense, if for some reason the CDCR interpreted it in a way that they weren't eligible for this early release, they, they would have a pretty strong equal protection argument that they, they were entitled, right? Yeah, I, I agree, because the, the, the folks who were released onto PRCS from state prison are necessarily the lower level offenders, which Prop 57 purports uh, are, are eligible for early parole consideration. Okay, now what about the hearings themselves? Uh, will victims of the crimes committed by Prop 57 eligible offenders have a right to be present and heard at parole consideration hearings uh, under Marcy's law, regardless of whether or not those are you know, full-blown parole hearings like you would have for a person serving life terms, or whether or not they're more uh, truncated types of, of hearings or even paper hearings. Well, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how CDCR fashions its regulations as far as what these hearings involved, what they're called, and whether there might be some rights of victims uh, included in the regulations, but we know that we have in Marcy's Law in the California Constitution a number of rights, such as the right of a victim to have notice of a post-conviction release proceeding, the right to be heard upon request at a post-conviction release proceeding, uh, the right to be informed upon request of the scheduled release date of a defendant, uh, to be informed of parole procedures, and to have the safety of the victim, the victim's family, and the general public considered before any parole decision is made. So there are a lot of rights already there that and the regulations are going to have to take into account. Yeah, well, these parole consideration hearings under Prop 57, uh, under even uh, the, the most narrow interpretation of what it is, it's going to qualify as a post-conviction release proceeding, wouldn't you agree? I, I think most people would have to agree with that, yes. And, and at least as to these some of the specific rights that you've just mentioned, these individual rights that 
are part of Marcy's Law and which are also part of the California Constitution, uh, there's nothing on the face of Prop 57 that precludes these rights from being enforced, especially when you take into account the, the general rule out there that when you have constitutional provisions that can reasonably be construed to, to avoid conflict, that's the construction you, you've got to adopt. And there, there's already, you know, there's statutory authority as well for enforcement of, of these rights uh, for, for victims. And do you think that if the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation fails to respect these rights to notice uh, to the victim and a right to be heard for the victim, that e either the victim or, or the prosecution will be able to go into court and enforce them? I, I certainly bl 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 believe that, absolutely. All right, well, that being the case, this is probably a good time to remind prosecutors that because many of these rights are contingent upon a request by the victim to the right, uh, it is incumbent upon prosecutors who are obtaining convictions, either by way of plea or by trial, uh, of defendants who might be subject to early release, to let victims know that they need to request the notice or the right, right to be heard. Because if they don't, none of these rights uh, uh, apply. Yes, at least until the regulations are, are written, I think it's important in every single case where a defendant is being sentenced to state prison that we let our victims know that they need to request that notice from CDCR, like, again, because we don't know how the regulations are going to be worded. I think it's important in every single case. That way, at least the victim is protected because the request has been lodged with CDCR. Right. Now, I don't know uh, what we will be doing or what is the type of approach to take to uh, individuals, victims who uh, were the victims of defendants who committed Prop 57 eligible crimes before the passage of Prop 57 and would have had no reason necessarily to request notification if the person was going to be released early because they, Prop 57 didn't exist at that time. But that's a, a whole other category of, of questions that might arise. Uh, as to what an office might want to do when it comes to victims of, of crimes who previously were not notified uh, or weren't encouraged to put their name in and ask for notification. And certainly prosecutor offices could post information about this on their websites or get the word out through the media uh, that such requests uh, might be a good idea to make these requests, even if the, set, the, the case was resolved a couple of years ago. All right. Now, what criteria will be used in determining whether someone who, who technically is eligible for early parole consideration ultimately gets released? Because it doesn't say in this that they must be released. It just says that they're eligible for release, correct? Yes, and that's why we, are, we need to erase the regulations from CDCR, which presumably will be uh, open to public comment. Uh, and uh, we'll just, again, have to wait and see what CDCR adopts as far as regulations go. And they are, according to statute, you know, subject to attack. And we may see attacks from both sides, both by defendant inmates who are not happy because they feel their regulations are too restrictive, and maybe also attacks from law enforcement who feel they're too expansive. Kathy, does Prop 57 provide any other way that defendants might be eligible for earlier release than they are under the, under the scheme in existence before Prop 57 passed? Yes, and Proposition 57 allows CDCR to award credits for good behavior and for approved rehabilitative or educational achievements. 
Kathy, though, there, there are various statutes that limit how much credit state prisoners can receive. For example, uh, defendants convicted of murder are not entitled to any conduct credit. Violent felons are only entitled to no more than 15% conduct credit. And persons with strike priors are entitled to no more than 20% conduct credit. Do you think the fact that the uh, CDCR was given authority to award credit earned for good behavior and rehabilitative or educational achievements, that that uh, authority will trump the statutory limitations on the amount of credit certain prisoners can currently receive? Well, arguably, yes. The limitations on credits are all statutorily based, but CDCR's authority is now enshrined in the California Constitution. But whether this constitutional authority will be viewed as being given subject to existing limitations on statutory credit remains to be seen. Uh, prosecutors should not assume that the statutory limitations on the amount of credit will necessarily be respected by the CDCR. It certainly seems from, uh, in reading Proposition 57, that the intent is that CDCR will be giving more credits than are allowed by statute. Okay. Will Prop 57 have any impact on defendants who are serving uh, felony sentences, but they're serving them in county jail under uh, Penal Code Section 1170H, as opposed to serving their sentence in state prison? Well, it, it shouldn't. It shouldn't affect the 1170H realignment jail inmates. Uh, equal protection will likely fail because these jail, re the, the jail realignment defendants, um, I'm sorry, the people in prison are not similarly situated to folks in jail serving realignment 1170H sentences. It's just, it's just different. And so uh, while I, I would expect to see these challenges, they really shouldn't have any merit. I, I, I tend to agree with you. They're just uh, the whole, one of the reasons we have Prop 57 is to try to uh, limit the amount of people in prison. There was no intent to limit the amount of people who are serving time in county jail. Yes. So. All right. Now, aside from the changes to when defendants may be released, Proposition 57 made changes to the juvenile law, particularly when it comes to the prosecution's ability to direct file cases. What were those uh, changes, Kathy? Well, before Proposition 57 passed, prosecutors could file directly against a minor in several different circumstances. One was uh, mandatory direct filing for minors who committed murder personally or committed uh, certain major sex offenses. In other situations, a minor age 16 or older who was accused of committing an offense listed in the Welfare and Institutions Code 707B list uh, could be direct filed upon. Um, and the 707B offenses, for example, are murder, arson, robbery, rape, various other sex offenses, uh, violent felonies, carjacking, weapon use, etc. Okay. Or minors who are 14 years of age or older uh, when a particular circumstance applied could be filed directly into adult court. And some of those circumstances included um, that uh, if the crime had been committed by an adult, the adult would be punishable by death or imprisonment in the state prison for life. Personal use of a firearm is another circumstance. Uh, 707B offense with a previous 707B offense or an offense committed for gang purposes and finally, another way that a minor could be directly filed upon was if the minor was age 16 or older and it was alleged that the minor committed a, an offense listed in 707D3, a particular subset of crimes, 
and the minor had previously been found to be a ward of the court for any felony offense committed when age 14 or older. Okay, so uh, Proposition 57 has now eliminated uh, all those sections and accordingly the ability of the prosecutor to file directly against any minor in adult court? Yes, that's all gone now. So we're back really to a pre-Proposition 21, pre-June of 2000 world where uh, you know, the crimes were juveniles who were found their way to adult court, found their way through fitness hearings. Okay, so the, Prop 57 doesn't prevent minors from being prosecuted in adult court. Correct. Okay, it just limits how they get to adult court. Yes, basically. a court has to hold what they now are referring to as a transfer hearing. And the transfer hearing is essentially the equivalent of what uh, previously had been called a fitness hearing? Yes. Now, have there been changes to the criteria used in determining whether or not a juvenile should be transferred? In other words, whether or not, uh, at a hearing in determining whether or not the juvenile should be considered fit for prosecution in juvenile court, have there been some, some changes made as to the standards? Yes, the presumptions that were in previous uh, law that a minor was not fit, fit to be dealt with in juvenile court law are gone. So now there are no presumptions. There are just the five criteria that the court needs to look at. But again, no presumptions. So, for example, minors who committed 707B offenses previously, uh, many of which were violent or serious felonies when they were 14 years of, or, or older, there was a presumption that the minor was not fit to be dealt with under juvenile court law. That's gone. That is gone, correct. Uh, similarly, if the minor was 16 years or older and had committed any new felony offense, there was a presumption the minor was not fit for juvenile court if that minor had previously been found to be a ward of the court based on having committed two or more felonies before, uh, uh, after he was 14. That presumption no longer exists either. Correct. All right. So uh, let's say, Kathy, we've already direct filed the case against the minor in adult court. Can we, you know, just charge ahead? In other words, is the requirement that a juvenile have a transfer hearing before being prosecuted in adult court, retroactive to pending cases. Cases where, the, let's first just talk about cases where they haven't even been convicted yet. Uh, is there some requirement that uh, we have to go back and uh, direct and request a transfer hearing uh, if, for example, the preliminary examination hasn't been heard yet or the trial hasn't been heard yet? Well, perhaps, uh, Penal Code Section 3 states that no part of the penal code is retroactive unless expressly so declared. Now, Prop 57 didn't say anything about whether it applies prospectively or retroactively to cases involving juvenile defendants that were filed before the effective date, November 9th, 2016. Okay, I, I can see two kinds of arguments uh, being raised by the defense that uh, would require prosecutors to give the, de the defendant a transfer hearing. The first is uh, the argument that if the preliminary examination or the, or the trial has not yet happened, then requiring a transfer hearing uh, before that occurs is not really a retroactive application. I mean, they're applying this new law prospectively to events that have not yet occurred. Uh, and the second argument uh, that I expect to see is that there's an exception to the general presumption that uh, uh, 
initiatives and statutes are not to be applied retroactively. And that's when you have a, a new law that uh, reduces the punishment or mitigates the punishment for a crime. And I can see uh, juvenile defendants arguing that uh, if you file in directly in adult court, there's no opportunity for the, def for the defendant to have a judge determine that they should be prosecuted in juvenile court. And if they're prosecuted in juvenile court, they are not subject to the same level of, of punishment than they would be if they would be prosecuted in adult court. So uh, under the Estrada rule, a new law that reduces punishment is applied retroactively to every case that's not yet final. Uh, that's not yet final, and, it, and the case is not determined to be final until actually the time for uh, review in the United States Supreme Court has, has passed. Yeah, I, I expect that we're going to see uh, both positions out there by uh, by both the prosecutor, the prosecution, and, and the defense will be making several arguments. And one is that uh, it is somehow a lessening of punishment, as you described. Uh, but by the same token, I think that there is a, a valid argument that this is procedural only, and so it wouldn't apply to a case already filed in adult court at the moment that Prop 57 passed. I think we're going to see several different arguments here. In fact, we're going to see different counties taking different positions on this issue. Okay, well, uh, in the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide memo that accompanies uh, this podcast, uh, we tried to lay out uh, an idea of what sort of arguments are going to be made by the defense. Uh, the, the likelihood of those arguments prevailing, or at least the risk of those arguments prevailing, to help prosecutors determine uh, what they want to do on an, on an individual case uh, as to whether or not they should go forward or not. I mean, one way of attacking the problem is, is to draw a distinction between cases that uh, have not yet gone to trial and those that have gone to trial where there's been a conviction and the defendant has not been sentenced or they've already been sentenced. I think uh, it, even in the worst case scenario, if you've got a case where the defendant has already been convicted uh, and has been sentenced, uh, at most, a, an appellate court, even if they apply this rule retroactively, would do no more than send the case back down to the court for a transfer hearing to be held. And only if the judge uh, determines that the defendant should have been prosecuted as in a juvenile would it have any impact on the, the sentence that had already been imposed. Yes. Okay, well, there is a lot more uh, to come when we are dealing with the impacts of Prop 57, uh, so we're going to probably have to get back to our audience uh, maybe in a, a year from now to see how some of these issues are being resolved. Uh, but for now, I think we've, we've covered it pretty well, and uh, so thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you.